Can we connect to our loved ones who have died? After they've died, can we still connect to them? And so to answer this question, we first need to answer what happens to people when they die. Do we still exist after we die, or are we gone forever? Are we totally gone? If someone after they die is gone, they've totally discontinued, they don't exist anymore, then how can you connect to somebody who isn't there? It wouldn't be possible. So the very question, um, do we, can we connect to somebody after they die, would be premised on the assumption that after someone dies, they continue to exist in some form or another. Some people don't think about this point. Perhaps the, this paradox is best exemplified by Vladimir Lenin. He's one of history's most famous atheists, among other notorieties. And uh, yet his body stands until today in a mausoleum in Moscow, um, although he himself believed that he's gone forever. And there's no one to honor, he wouldn't be aware of it. And yet in Judaism, we do believe um, that, we, that that's a fair question, can we connect to our loved ones after they die? Because we do believe that people don't disappear after they die. People are still there. And that's because we believe that the person is not the body. The body indeed ceases to function after death. We bury it and it disintegrates in the ground over time. But we don't believe we are not, we believe we are not our bodies. We are our soul. When I say I, who am I? It's not my head or my heart or even my brain. The I, when I say I, is me, is a soul, is a spiritual being that cannot be, that we cannot put our finger on, we cannot describe. It's a soul. Who, I can think, who thinks? I understand, who understands? I am aware, who is aware? I decide, who decides? I feel, who feels? That I is the soul. It's not our brain. Our brain is merely a machine. It's a processor, like a computer, just a much, much more sophisticated. It processes information. It's able to get my body to react to emotion. It's able to retain information. But who is the I that reads that information? Who understands the information being processed? You say, I understand. What do you understand? Who understands? I feel. Who feels? That is a spiritual soul. What exactly is a soul? So the truth is, in our current state, meaning being in our bodies, we actually don't know. Because in our current state, our soul is trapped in our body and can only, is only aware of things that our body is aware of. And our body is only aware of things that we can measure with sight, with hearing, with touch, with smell, with taste, with our senses. Anything we cannot measure with our senses, our body is unaware of. Because our soul is currently trapped within our body, our soul is unaware of anything that cannot be measured by a physical body. And so therefore we don't know what we are. We don't know what the soul actually is. The soul we believe is a spiritual being 
that cannot be measured in any way. And we don't know what that is. We don't know what that spiritual being actually is. We don't have any sense of what it is, yet we believe that we know we exist and we believe that is who we are. So this soul, the real I, existed and was conscious before it came into my body. We were here before. And we continue to exist after we die. We don't go anywhere. The I doesn't go anywhere. We lose the trap of the body. We're no longer stuck in the body. Now we could be conscious of spiritual reality. But we're still there. We were there before we were born, and we continue to be there after we die. As a spiritual being, the soul is eternal. It continues. The real I continues um, despite our death. In a sense, we Jews don't believe in afterlife, but we believe that life continues. It's always been there, um, and it will continue even after death. So we don't know what that existence is like once we die. Our soul continues, but now it's no longer trapped in a body, so it continues as a spiritual being. Because we don't understand spirituality, we have no way to relate to spirituality, we don't understand what it's like after death, what the experience is like. All the descriptions that we get of various after-death experiences are inaccurate because they're all described in physical terms to fit our current set of understanding, our, to fit our current reality. But the truth is the experience of the soul is spiritual because it's truly a spiritual being. And once it leaves the body, it no longer has physical experience. So we don't know what that experience is like. We don't know what it's like to be a non-physical being. We can't describe what the soul is or what it goes through, um, at least accurately, um, after we die. Currently, we don't know what it would be like, but we do believe the soul is there. Yes, yes uh, uh, Rabbi, can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Okay, well, I heard on NPR several years ago, Rabbi Telushkin being interviewed, and his comment was uh, about the hereafter they were asking him. Uh, and they, he said that uh, those that say they know uh, probably don't, and those that know are not talking. Very good way of putting it, yes. But we cannot, even if someone were to come back and tell us, and the truth is, in Judaism, we believe that while very rare, people have come back to tell the tale. Um, but you can't describe it in physical terminology. So there's no way you can describe it. There's no way a person in this current earth can, on earth, can understand what it is. We don't know what the soul's experience is, but we do believe that we continue. We continue to exist. We don't disappear. We believe this soul is conscious. After death, we remain conscious, and we're not only aware of our new spiritual reality, but the soul is aware of the world that it left. While the physical is unaware of the spiritual, we cannot see or hear or connect to spirituality. We cannot be aware consciously of spirituality. The spiritual is aware of the physical, and so the soul can be aware of what's going on in our physical world. And it can see us and hear us and know exactly what we're doing.
And so therefore we believe that the souls of our loved ones continue to be aware of us and what we're doing and continue to care for us even after they die. They don't disappear, they're still there. And they are aware of us and aware of what we're doing and see what's happening in our lives and care about us even after their death. However, given that it's a spiritual being, the souls don't usually communicate with those that they left behind because the soul doesn't have too many avenues to communicate with us. Sometimes they communicate indirectly very, very rarely they can communicate in a more direct manner, perhaps via a dream or in some other way. It's very rare. It's not common. And uh, even when they do, often we're not positively certain that that was a communication. And it's hard, to, uh, it's hard for us humans to separate between our imagination and real experience of our loved ones. Maybe it doesn't matter, but it's hard for them to communicate with us. And therefore, we don't generally get direct communication of our loved ones after they die. And yet we believe they are aware of what we are doing, what we are saying, and they care for us. Yes, Bart. Uh, Sandy wanted to ask a question. Go ahead, Sandy. That's very confusing to me. Uh, for the soul to be aware of the physical, that means like they don't have eyes, they don't have this... So they see the physical world and what's going on and or are they um, having um, an ability to not see because that's the words we use for I see right but the ability to connect with the soul is that what you're talking about the soul on earth or are you saying that they're up there and they look at everything that's going on. But we don't know exactly what spirituality is like. <laughs> humans are able to see. So we use the term for spirituality that they see, but of course they don't really see because they don't have eyes. Uh, they don't have light um, to be able to see. So, but we don't know how they're aware. We don't know what awareness is even like when you're a spiritual being. We don't know what spiritual beings are like. So we're going to use our own terminology to describe way the spiritual works we don't really know how they are aware of us but we that does that doesn't make any sense to her what I, you just I, said. Don't, I don't want to pass on and see all the things that are going on on earth i, I don't want to see all that i just want to see the goodness we do believe does that makes sense people are aware of what's going on on earth we do believe that they, sorry, the souls, souls that have died are aware of what's going on on earth. <laughs> exactly the mechanics of how, we don't know because we don't know what it's like. We have no idea what spiritual experience is like. So we can't. Yeah, because you can't do it, your soul can't do anything about it. They are aware of what's going on on earth, the good and the bad. <coughs> Rabbi, yes. you're describing uh, the soul in an afterlife, but you've also said that the soul exists before life yes. and then becomes part of the physical being. So it's a continuum. So my question is, how has the soul changed from what it was before it entered a physical being and what it is after it leaves a physical being? Well, it had no personality before it came into a physical being. 
it had no human experience, and now it does. Everything that it's gained on earth, all the good things it's done, all the commandments that it's followed, um, all of God's Torah that it studied, souls change in many ways here on earth. They, so before birth, the soul really has no characteristics. It's an empty existence floating about that randomly gets assigned to a physical being. Yes, yes. Now floating again is using a physical term. True. Either spiritual, but yes. All right, so it's all in a pot. I don't care. Yes. Yes, again, it's hard to escape those physical terminologies. So the souls are aware of us. They can rarely communicate with us sometimes, but um, and when they do, it's hard for us to be certain that they did. Um, but can we, our question for today is, can we communicate with the souls? Can we do anything for them after death? Susan, did you want to ask a question? Well, it was from before. Uh, okay. Uh, so my soul will continue to be my soul for eternity. Yes. So whatever personality traits I have and all that sort of stuff will just sort of exist forever and ever and ever. Well, your personality traits are physical, right? Yeah. Your physical existence. But whatever you've done on earth, your achievements on earth. I have to go upstairs, honey. I just lost the. What happened? Get it back on. I'm listening to it. And you can't have it on my cell phone. To myself. Connections and re relationships um, on earth. Um, though that that which you do, your connections, your relationships, that stays with you. But your physical personality, um, I don't know if that necessarily stays. Well, like certain traits that a person has, like being a friendly person or a giving person and all that stuff, does that just go along with the soul when they die? I don't believe so. Okay, so it's not that kind of stuff. Not that okay. kind of personality. No, we, I, I meant the connections you've made with other souls, the good you've done, the bad you've done, that all stays with you. Well, that's kind of unfortunate for some people if they, right. you know, if they didn't like their life in the past or whatever they've done and it stays with them for eternity, that's pretty sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what about, so can we communicate with the souls? Can we do anything for them after death? So while the soul itself continues after death, and we believe that souls after death are in a better place, they don't struggle like we do in life. Life is one big struggle. Um, souls don't struggle in, our, say, in, our, in the same way. Um, souls are, um, don't, ha don't have the challenges that we have. However, in a sense, and while they're aware of us, we are the ones, the ones left behind, are the ones that miss them. We don't see them. So we want to be able to be our, near our loved ones. We're really the ones missing, missing out, not the ones who died. The ones who died are doing just fine where they are, um, and they're still aware of us. We're the ones missing out. We want to be able to be near our loved ones. We want to be able to talk to them, communicate with them. We want to be able to feel their love. And perhaps the most difficult part of it is that we continue to grow in life, reaching different milestones, and we want our loved ones with us to achieve it with us, to be there with us. 
And so, and as we change, they, you know, they might be in our minds, but we don't see them with us as part of us. So we believe that while they don't necessarily communicate to us, we can speak to them. We can definitely speak to our loved ones. Um, and we can also grow with them. And let's talk about each of these things one at a time. First, let's talk about speaking to our loved ones. Because we believe that spiritual beings are aware of the physical, though physical are not aware of the spiritual, spiritual are aware of the physical, and our loved ones who have died are now spiritual beings, our souls, we can talk to our loved ones and they hear us. They're aware of what we're saying. They may have trouble responding, or maybe hard for us to get a response, but they do hear us. They are aware of us. We have the ability to also, um, uh, we have the ability to communicate with them, tell them what's going on. Um, they hear what we're saying, see what we're doing. Um, they're aware of it all. Now, it is hard for someone to talk and communicate to something that you can't see and doesn't respond. It's difficult. Um, it's a part of Judaism prayer where we speak to God. It's a very important part of Judaism that we don't get hear God's direct communication back to us. We see it maybe in our lives. Uh, with our loved ones, we may also see their communication back to us in an indirect way, but we don't hear them speak directly. But because of the physical need to, when you talk to somebody, to feel like you're actually talking to someone and not talking to nothing, Jewish traditions tell us that the best way to really communicate with our loved ones, that we feel their presence, we feel we're close to them, is to go to their place of burial. Though the body is no longer alive, it's their place on earth where they continue to be connected to. It's the place that we can go to and connect to our loved ones. And so that's why in um, Jewish traditions, it's very important we want to communicate with our loved ones to go to their gravesite. And um, we have in that way a sense of a physical space, a space that's associated with our loved ones. And that's why Jews regularly visit the graves of their loved ones. We always bury our loved ones in a place where we can easily go visit them. And we'll often make sure to bury them or even transport them if necessary to a place where we know we'll be able to easily visit them um, so that they will be visited and we can communicate with them. There are Jewish traditions to go every anniversary, the yard site, the anniversary of death, we go visit our loved ones at the cemetery. There's a tradition to go before Rosh Hashanah every year, before the new year, to go to the cemetery and visit our loved ones, um, as well as to go before every major life milestone, before a person goes through a major milestone in life. Um, <laughs> there's a tradition, um, it's called in um, Yiddish, Keveravis, um, where a person goes to their parents, grandparents, um, or other loved ones, gravesides to pray, and people often travel. Jewish tradition is to travel great distances um, overseas or wherever it is to be able to regularly visit your loved ones and be able to speak to them at their grave because that is the best way for us to connect to them, the best way that we're able to speak to them and communicate with them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, 
have a kind of a personal experience in a way. Um, my brother, he, um, in the last couple of years, he's always talking about how my parents are with him all the time. They're deceased and he's constantly talking to them. And I, I kind of thought he was delusional and I was worried that maybe it was a sign of Alzheimer's or something like that. And so um, I've gone, you know, I've taken him to a couple of psychologists and, um, and you know, what's interesting is none of them feel like that that's an issue. They don't think it's a psychiatric problem. Um, and some of them have even said that's a good thing. I know many very sane and um, intelligent people who feel their loved ones communicate with them after death. And they may be right. Um, again, it's very hard to definitively confirm it to be true or not, even for someone having such an experience. Is it your imagination? Is it not? It's hard to definitively know. Um, mm -hmm. And but it's not really. It doesn't really matter um, if you know you feel your loved ones close to you. Then that's good. I mean, you have a, it's a great opportunity. Um, you know, there's no reason to decide that you know there's no reason to um reject it or to belittle it um is it accurate are your loved ones really communicating with you we'll probably never know there's no way to know well i don't know if they're communicating with him there he he feels like their presence is there oh, it could be as well. but, he, but he's the one that's doing all the communicating and he's constantly talking to them so. we do believe we could talk to our loved ones and they do hear us um anywhere but definitely we connect much better to them when we're at their graveside. And for that reason, Jews regularly visit the graves of their loved ones. So now that's, so we are able to communicate with them. We are able to speak to them though they have trouble communicating back to us. Um, but it's not enough just to communicate to our loved ones. We really want to be able to grow with our loved ones or help them grow. One of the greatest challenges is as we continue to grow in life, the person loses their parents and their middle age or you know, still you know, a certain age. And then they get older, they have go through great milestones, their children get married, um, you know, they go through other important milestones in their lives and their parents aren't there, right? At a certain point, suddenly you realize or someone who had a child or a sibling um, or a good friend um, you go through milestones in life and they're not there. Um, at a certain point in life, it dawns upon everyone that, many people at least, that you've reached the age of your parents. You're, so you think of your parents as being old and you've, you're now the age your parents were when you last remember them. And so you've essentially, there's this feeling that you're growing, continuing without them. And in a way, it's the hardest part of losing a loved one that we continue, life continues, we continue to grow, and they don't. They stop, they freeze where they were. Which is very true in a sense, because as we've said, we're, we're only able to change ourselves, make an impact on ourselves, on our lives, while we're alive, on the world around us, while we're alive. After we die, whatever we've done, that's what we have. Whatever we've done, good and bad, that's who we are. You can't change that once you've moved, once the soul's moved on to a new reality. You can't change your experience here in this world. You can't improve, you can't grow once you've died. 
And so the hardest thing for us, the loved ones that are left behind, is to continue through life as we continue to grow and evolve and hopefully become better and make a positive impact. And we do it without our loved ones, without our parents seeing us and being proud of our achievements and themselves continuing to grow, without our spouse, for someone who's lost a spouse, without a sibling or without children or without a close friend. We continue to grow and reach these milestones and develop and they're stuck where they are. And so in Judaism teaches us that while they are loved ones indeed, once they've died, they can't do anything anymore on earth. But we, as their family, children particular, we have the ability to keep their legacy alive. We can help them grow here on earth by doing things on their behalf. If we do something for them, then that helps them grow. So we have a number of different ways that we do this. And it's a very important thing in Judaism after we lose a loved one, whether a parent, a sibling, a child, whoever it may be, a spouse, to continue doing things on their behalf, helping them grow, helping build their legacy, helping them even when they can't do it themselves. We're their legs going for them. We're their arms carrying things for them. So our sages say that the greatest mitzvah a person can do is to praise God, or kiddush Hashem, sanctify God. Make God's presence known on earth. That's what we are created for. And so therefore, the greatest thing that we can do on behalf of somebody else who has died, is to praise God on their behalf. The Midrash tells us a story about the great sage Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one time walking down the street, and he saw someone carrying a very, very heavy load of wood. And he felt bad, and he said, excuse me, can I help you? Maybe we could carry it together, it would be a little easier. And the fellow said, no, you cannot help me. Rabbi Akiva said, why not? And the fellow said, because I'm not a person. I'm a soul. And Rabbi Akiva was a holy man, and he got to experience these kind of things. He said, I'm not a person. I'm a soul. And I was a Roman tax collector in my lifetime. Now, today nobody likes the IRS. But the IRS compared to the Roman tax collectors is not even close. At least the IRS has rules. And you could go to tax court and you could get a tax lawyer. The Roman tax collector had, collectors had no rules. They had the power to do whatever they wanted. To take taxes from whoever they wanted, however they wanted. They made up rules as they went along. And there was no way to enforce those rules. There was no way to... Um, there was no way to um, challenge or appeal um, a decision by the tax collectors. And so as you can imagine, the Roman tax collectors were crooks. They were violent. They could punish people for not giving them the money they wanted. And so this fellow was Jewish, but he had been a Roman tax collector. And so he was a crook, a horrible person. 
And so he said, God has punished him that every day he has to carry a large load of wood back to where, wherever it is. And then they, he has to set it up as a fire and they put him on the fire and they burn him again every time. Now, of course, this is all the physical description of a spiritual experience. Of course, this is not exactly what happens. It's just a metaphor to give us a sense that this soul was greatly, greatly troubled because of its actions here on earth. So Rabbi Akiva said, I felt very, very bad for the soul. and said, is there nothing I can do to help you? So the soul said, yes, there is one thing you can do to help me. I have a son who is growing up without a father. His father wasn't a very good person as is. But he's on the streets. If you can go to this and this town where my son lives and you can locate him and get him to say the Kaddish for me, get him to praise God on my behalf. Say, Yehishmei Rabbah Mevarach, his God's great name should be blessed. Then that will help me. And so Rabbi Akiva did that. He went to this town. He located the child. He taught the child didn't even go to school. Taught him how to read. Brought him to the synagogue and taught him how to say the Kaddish. And he said Kaddish for his father. And then the soul came to Rabbi Akiva in a dream and thanked him, said, you saved me. Now you've helped me. I've finally been able to get rest in my spiritual world. And so we believe that when we praise God on behalf of our loved ones, that brings them the greatest joy. And it gives them the greatest spiritual growth when we praise them. And therefore, the Jewish custom has developed. That when a person, when a, when a Jewish person dies, their children recite the Kaddish on their behalf. Praising God on their behalf. There are multiple different types of Kaddish. The tradition is that the mourners say the, what's called the Kaddish Yatom, the mourner's Kaddish, as well as the Kaddish de Rabbanan, the Rabbanan Kaddish. The different types of Kaddish are a subject of their own. We did a class about it some time ago and it's available on the podcast about these different types of Kaddish and why some are said by the mourners and some are not. So the, um, the it, but it is a custom that the children say Kaddish. Why the children? If there's anyone that can continue their parents, someone's legacy, it's their own children. The Talmud says, Bra kara avuha. A child is a leg of their parent. Your children is your own DNA. They're your own cell that has grown and multiplied. Your children are your continuation here on earth. Whatever they're doing, they're you doing it on your behalf. They're continuing your life. So a child does something on behalf of their parents. That's the most powerful thing. And therefore, children say Kaddish on behalf of their parents. Generally, it was sons, because sons are the ones that go to shul, because um, um, the prayer is a requirement for Jewish men. But women can say Kaddish as well on behalf of their mother, of the, half of their parents. Um, but children say Kaddish on behalf of their parents. If the children, if there are no children, or the children are unable or unwilling to say Kaddish on behalf of their parents, somebody else can. 
ideally another relative, somebody who they loved and cared for. If not anybody else can say Kaddish, can be hard to say Kaddish on behalf of um, the person who has passed on, to praise God on their behalf. And this brings our loved ones great satisfaction and helps them that we are now praising God and bringing what we call Kiddush Hashem, making God holy on earth on their behalf, on behalf of our loved ones. The tradition has developed in all Jewish communities that we say Kaddish after the death of our parents or a loved one for 11 months minus one day. Why 11 months? Because after death, the soul goes through a cleansing process, and that cleansing process for the worst people takes 11 months, takes 12 months. Since we presume that our parents are not the worst people, um, therefore tradition is that we do it for 11 months. We say Kaddish for 11 months. We also continue to say Kaddish each year on their yard site, on the anniversary of their passing. We also recite Kaddish on their behalf. In addition to the Kaddish, the powerful prayer of Kaddish on behalf of our loved ones, we also have a number of memorial play prayers that we say. After someone dies, when we bury them, or when we, um, when we um, do the unveiling, when we put up the, what we call the Matseva, or the, their uh, monument, when, uh, when we put up their tombstone, we, um, and then later again, every year on the yard site, we have a tradition to say, Kel Male Rachamim. Kel Male Rachamim is a prayer that says, God, who is full of mercy, um, may you grant eternal peace and rest to the soul of our loved ones. And we ask God to do so because we are going to donate to charity on their behalf. And so it's essentially a commitment. We're going to give tzedakah. We're going to give charity on their behalf. And we ask God in exchange to, um, we ask God in exchange to um, care for them and give them eternal rest and peace and happiness uh, because of the tzedakah we are giving on their behalf. We also have a tradition on Yom Kippur, as well as on four other festivals, Shmini Atzeret, on the last day of Passover and the second day of Shavuot, to recite what's called the Yisker prayer. Yisker prayer is very similar to the Kel Male Rachamim. We ask God to remember our loved ones, and um, we ask God to remember our loved ones, and we pledge again to give charity on their behalf, and ask God in honor of the charity that we are giving on their behalf, to please remember our loved ones. And these are very powerful prayers. Um, people often think it's about us remembering our loved ones. It's not, it's not about us, but it's asking God to remember and protect and care for our loved ones in their current state. As a soul um, close to God, we ask our God to prepare for, um, we ask God to protect our loved ones and care for them. We also believe, though, that not only can we ask God to care for our loved ones, our loved ones can ask God to care for us. And because they're in a spiritual state, they, in a sense, have a better or a closer relationship with God. 
they have a more open door because they're in a spiritual state. And so therefore we act when we speak to our loved ones and or when we go to their grave, in addition to talking to them, we also ask them to speak to God and pray to God on our behalf. And we believe that souls can pray just as humans can pray and can communicate with God just as we can communicate with God. And we ask them to communicate with God on our behalf. In fact, when people are in trouble, when you reach a challenge in life, people often go to the graves of their loved ones and ask their loved ones, please pray to God on our behalf. Of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray ourselves, but the more that pray, the better. Just as we pray for other people and we ask others to pray for us in the same way we can ask our loved ones who have died to pray for us as well. In Yiddish, we have a phrase where we ask our relatives to be a gute better, or a good advocate on our behalf before God. So in addition to asking God to remember our loved ones, or asking our loved ones to ask God to remember us and give us things that we need, there are other powerful things that we can do Though they cannot, as we said, continue here on earth, they cannot do things, we can do things on their behalf. We can do mitzvahs, follow God's commandments. We can also study Torah on their behalf. They can, we believe that souls continue to study in the next world. But the Torah study of a soul is not the same as Torah study here on earth. They can't study Torah fulfilling the command for hum to humans, to Jews, to study Torah. We can study Torah on our behalf, and we can dedicate the Torah that we study to our loved ones. And so, um, and so we can dedicate, we can dedicate our own Torah study, we can dedicate other people's Torah study, perhaps a class um, we can dedicate to our loved ones. You can dedicate a Torah book to your loved ones, so that when someone studies that Torah book, they are bringing merit to your loved one, because that Torah book was published on behalf of your loved one. But of all the different parts of Torah that we can study for our loved ones, there's a special power to the book of Mishnah. Mishnah is the first work that was written of our oral traditions. Originally, we, um, the Torah, um, we, in addition to the written Torah, or before the written Torah, we were given oral teachings called the Torah Shabbat al that was taught orally from generation to generation. We've done a class before discussing the Torah Shabbat al the oral Torah. Um, and the oral Torah was written down over the years. Um, the first book of the oral Torah to be written is the book of Mishnah. The Mishnah is made up of six starim, six orders, and 63 mesechtot, which are booklets um, on 63 different topics, and split themselves by chapter. There's about 500 chapters uh, in the Mishnah. And then, that, that, then the chapters are split into what's called Mishnayot, or paragraphs. So the Mishnah, and the Mishnah serves as the basis of the Gemara, the Talmud, is essentially a commentary on the Mishnah. Um, the mission is essentially the basics of Jewish law on various subjects covering every single subject in Judaism. 
And so our tradition tells us that the word Mishnah um, has the same mem is spelled in Hebrew, mem shin nun hey, has the same letters as the word neshama, nun shin mem hey. It's the same four letters, just switched around. And so according to our traditions, Mishnah has particular power to connect to the soul of our loved ones. And therefore, we have a tradition to study, not just to study in general for our loved ones, but to study the Mishnah for our loved ones. To study the book of Mishnah. And we have a number of different ways in which tradi traditions that have evolved over the years as to how what we study in honor of our loved ones. Firstly, there is a tradition to split. There are 63 booklets of the Mishnah. And there's a tradition that when someone passes for all of their friends and relatives to split the entire Mishnayot, the entire book of Mishnah among themselves. So 63 people each take upon themselves to learn a different Masichta, a different booklet of the Mishnah over the next 30 days. It's a time-consuming endeavor. It takes time to learn Mishnah. It's not easy. Today, the Mishnah is available in English, you can get it, I think it's even translated, you can even get it online translated. Um, there's, a, there's a couple great translations of the Mishnah available in English. And so you can get the Mishnah and it's split and you can, what happens is everyone, different relatives and friends uh, commit to studying a different Masichta. Um, they're various sizes, some are fairly short, some are a little longer. Um, and uh, everyone studies, and so that between everyone, they finish the entire Mishnah before the Shloshim, before the 30-day anniversary of the, or the 30-day mark after the passing. Um, today, you actually can buy sets of Mishnah, I think they have them in English as well, where each Mesicht is a different uh, pocket-sized book that you can then distribute to all the friends and relatives, um, so everybody has the book that they're supposed to study. Um, for someone who has lots of friends and relatives, sometimes they'll run through the Mishnah multiple times over um, to give everybody a chance to study something, to study some Mishnah in memory of, um, in memory of the deceased. Um, there is also a tradition um, during the Shiva, during the Shloshim, or um, over the year, uh, uh, or on the yard site on the anniversary, to study Mishnah, to study Mishnayot, either chapters or paragraphs um, that begin in chapter, in other words, a chapter is going to be a lot more, or a paragraph that begin with the letters of the person's name. So say somebody's name was Avraham, Abraham, it's spelled Aleph, Bet, Resh, He, Mem. So you would study a chapter or a Mishnah starting with the letter Aleph, and then a, study, a chapter or Mishnah starting with the letter Bet, and then a chapter studying or Mishnah starting with the letter Resh, and then a chapter or Mishnah starting with the letter He, and then a chapter or Mishnah starting with the letter Mem. So we do that either during the Shiva, it's traditional to do it, or... Um, right after the Shiva, or we do it during the, um, 
or we do it on the yard site on the anniversary, uh, we could do it as well. We actually have a program here um, at the JCC in conjunction with the JLI when people want, where we actually print booklets when someone loses a loved one, we, have, we can print a booklet that has the Mishnahs for their name. Um, so we can have a print that we get it printed within a day or two, and then we're able to study it with at the Shiva house. Um, and we do that at Shiva houses, or we'll study it, or if someone wants it for a yard site, we could do that as well. There's also a tradition to study two particular chapters of Mishnah in honor of our loved ones. One is from the book of Kalim. Kalim is a book that speaks about, literally, Kalim means utensils, and it speaks about the laws of Tuma and Tahara, which are ritual purity, laws that existed when the temple stood, um, where someone who was ritually impure was not able to enter the temple or eat sacrificial meat. Um, and so certain things are able to become tamay, ritually impure. And Kalim speaks about which utensils can become ritually impure and how. So in the book of Kalim, chapter 24, has every Mishnah in that chapter ends with the word tahar, pure. And because it ends with the word tahar, pure, and the soul is tahar, is pure, it's a tradition to study chapter 24 of the book of Kalim. There's also a tradition to study chapter 7 of the book of Mikvaot. The booklet of the Mesicht of Mikvaot speaks about a mikvah. And the mikvah is the ritual pool of water that somebody that's truly impure would immerse themselves in. Um, or um, even today, a woman who is a nida after a menstrual cycle immerses herself in a mikvah. So um, there's a booklet of the Mishnah that speaks about mikvahs called Mikvaot. And there's a tradition to study chapter 7. And the reason for that is because the last four Mishnahs of chapter 7, the first one starts with the letter Nun. The next Mishnah starts with the letter Shin. The next Mishnah starts with the letter Mem. And the final Mishnah starts with the letter He. Nun, Shin, Mem, He, spelling the letters Neshama, Sol. So therefore there's a tradition that this chapter um, has great power to connect to and give great spiritual energy to the soul. And in fact, these two chapters, chapter 24 of Kelim and chapter 7 of Mikvaot, are found in the back of the Sidur, in the back of the prayer book. Um, you can find it in any Sidur, um, because mourners um, study it, and there's a tradition in many communities that the mourners study it um, every single day, um, before every single prayer, um, they study this chapter, these two chapters. Of course, you can dedicate any learning to our loved ones as well, and in that way, um, help elevate their souls and help them grow. But not, yes, Susan. You have to unmute yourself. Um, okay, in that last chapter you talked about that the first sentence of this section has a letter that makes up what word? Neshama, soul. Oh, soul, okay, thank you. But we can also do mitzvahs in honor of, of our loved ones. The greatest mitzvah that we can do, but there are many mitzvahs that we can do in their honor, but the greatest mitzvah that we can do in honor of our loved ones is the mitzvah of tzedakah. Earlier we mentioned that the Kel Malei Rachamim and the Yisker prayers are both commitments to give tzedakah on behalf of our loved ones. 
Our sages say that tzedakah is the most powerful mitzvah of all. Um, it elevates us more than any other mitzvah. The reason for that is because we're giving, when we give tzedakah, we're parting with our own finances, our own money that we've made, that we've earned, we've worked hard for, and we're taking that money and we're giving it to, we're giving it to God, we're giving it to somebody else, or something, it's either a person in need or an organization that's doing mitzvahs that's in need, um, but we're essentially giving it to God, we're doing it for God, and so we're taking our hard-earned money and giving it to God, and that means that our hard work wasn't just for ourselves, we were working for God. Our work itself becomes a mitzvah. Now, those that have died cannot do hard work. They don't work anymore. They just are there, but they can't work. Uh, not the way we do. They don't struggle. They don't have challenges. So we, though, can work on their behalf. When we give tzedakah in their memory, not only is the mitzvah then in their memory, but the work that we have done now becomes we've worked in order to give tzedakah. Without it, we would not have been able to work. We would not have had the money for tzedakah. The work that we've done then becomes tzedakah, then becomes on their behalf. We've done work to give tzedakah for God on their behalf. And so every time we give tzedakah, whenever we help somebody else on their behalf, we really bring great energy to the soul of our loved ones. And it brings the greatest energy. And really, not only can we give tzedakah, but we also can dedicate specific things to the, our loved ones on their behalf. When we dedicate um, something, whether it's um, something, whether it's an organization that's going to help other people, or an organization that's teaching Torah, or that's um, or a synagogue, um, when we dedicate to them on behalf of our loved ones, we in that sense memorialize them. And in that sense, we keep them alive here on this earth. And they are then alive here, or they are, their legacy continues as we continue doing good on their behalf, we continue helping others on their behalf. Yes, Don? Rabbi, I know in the past you have discussed that the naming of a child in honor of a deceased relative is a custom and not a mitzvah necessarily, but uh, in this perspective, can it be perceived as one? And if so, uh, where does it lie on the hierarchy of mitzvahs on behalf of the dead? It's not a mitzvah. It's a custom. It's up to every parent to choose whatever name they want for their kid. There is a Jewish custom to name after our loved ones to keep their memory alive. But no, we are not required to at all. Let me just con conclude. So we've given, we've told you both that we can communicate with our loved ones. They can communicate with us, though it's a lot harder, but we definitely can communicate with them. The best way to do so is by going to their grave um, and communicating there. We can always communicate with them. We can also ask them to pray on our behalf. We can do things for them on their behalf, reciting the Kaddish. We can study Torah, particularly Mishnayas. We can ask God to remember them in the Yisker prayer or the Kelmalei Rachamim prayer. Um, and we can do mitzvahs, we can give charity on our behalf. But ultimately, we believe that death is temporary. We believe that death is not going to last forever. We believe in a concept called Chiyat Hametim, resurrection of the dead. I hope to soon do a class on the subject. 
we believe that all those who have died will come back to life when Moshiach comes. We believe in the coming of Moshiach. Um, we've done a class on that before. We believe that there will, point, there will be a point where our world as we know it will end and we will enter a reality where we no longer have challenges. There is no longer an evil inclination. There is no longer struggles. Um, and at that point, when we reach that utopian existence, we believe all those who have worked for it will come back. And they will come back. And it's central to Jewish belief that when someone dies, it's not a permanent thing. It's temporary. There's a great tale told about the Chetam Sofer, who was one of the great, great Jewish, one of the greatest Jewish leaders um, in the 18th century, that he, um, he lived in um, Bratislav in Slovakia. And uh, there was someone in the community who was very wealthy, but refused to give any charity or give any money to the community. When they died, the Chevra um, Kadisha, the burial society, which was usually a community organization, um, charged the family an exorbitant sum for a burial plot. The family were upset, so they came to the rabbi, they said, you can't, this, this is ridiculous that you're charging us so much for a burial plot. That's not what everybody else pays. So the Chetam Sofer said, you have to understand, for most people, the burial plot that they buy is just temporary. You're just renting it. It's a lease until they come back to life. But your dad never gave any charity. So for him, it's permanent. You buy it permanently, it costs a lot more. So, but we do believe that when we bury people, it's temporary. We do believe that, um, and, we, um, and we have many traditions um, as part of the burial process um, to remind us that it's only temporary. They will come back. And though we can communicate with our loved ones and do things on their behalf, now we, we, we do believe we will see them again, whether in our own lifetime, if Mashiach comes, hopefully today or in our own lifetime, or if God forbid he doesn't, we will come back as well and we will see all of our loved ones again. And so uh, we will then be able to communicate with them.